Hey, this is Jeff Benjamin here with the Investment News Podcast. I'm here again with my colleague, Bruce Kelly, and uh, we have a special guest this week, Josh Brown, co-founder and CEO of Ritholtz Wealth Management. We're going to talk about Josh's newest book that he co-edited with Brian Portnoy. It is How I Invest My Money. Financial experts reveal how they save, spend, and invest. I'm holding it right here in my hand. None of you people can see it because you can't see me, but I promise I'm doing that just like they do on Jimmy Kimmel or whatever. Welcome aboard, everyone. Bruce, first, how you doing, buddy? How's uh, life up there in New York City? Oh, everything's great. The kids are finally back going to school one or two days a week. So we're definitely happy about that. All right. And Josh, welcome aboard. I know this is your first visit to our wonderful podcast, but we expect to have you back many more times. Thanks for joining us. I'm, I'm a listener. I, I'm a, I'm a long, I don't know about a long-time listener, but I started listening two weeks ago. <laughs> there you go. Uh, we, are, we are not that long, so two weeks is a good run. Okay, Josh, let's let's, let's start with the book. I, I know it uh, just uh, actually it hasn't even officially published yet. I think it publishes or drops, whatever they say, in the first couple of days of November. Tell us a little bit about the origins of this. It's, it's basically, it's not basically, it's literally 25 essays from financial service industry experts. Uh, tell us about it. Sure. So the book is called How I Invest My Money. And actually, the emphasis is supposed to be on the my. So it's how I invest my money is the way that we're supposed to say it. <laughs> but the origin of it is it comes out November 17th, but it's open for pre-order now everywhere. And the origin is very simple. Somebody asked me, you're always in the news talking about the markets, investing, funds, ETFs. What do you do? Like, don't tell me what you think I should do. What do you do with your money? And I wrote a blog post about it. And the blog post went, kind of viral, as viral as anything can go in finance, because we're a tiny vertical in, in terms of the whole world. But it went big within financial whatever. And my friend Brian Portnoy was just coming off his last book, which was a big hit, The Geometry of Wealth. And he was like, you have a book here. And I'm like, no, I don't, because I already promised my wife I would never do another book. And he's like, he's like, no, but I, I, well, this is book number three, Josh, right? Yeah, it really is. And yeah. probably the, the third and final of the trilogy, un, un, unless That's Disney impressive. Uh, has more money for me. But three books in 10 years, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, years, this, one, this one was less work though than the others because I didn't really write it. I edited it. Right. But so Portnoy's like, look, we have a ton of smart friends who are financial advisors and they're great communicators and explainers of topics and what if they were open to like getting personal and talking about what they do with their own money and i'm like all right let's let's work on it together and then the pandemic hit i think right after or right before we signed the contract with Harriman house they're like lockdown and then it's like oh maybe we do have a little bit of extra time on our <laughs> our hands so so brian it, to be like very upfront like brian did all the heavy lifting as the editor. I did a lot of the heavy lifting on like inviting people and trying to figure out who would be interesting. Then we brought on Carl Richards to do the illustrations. And I think the end result is something that is really unique. I don't think anyone's ever asked financial advisors, asset managers, what they do with their own personal dollars before. And we did it with 25 people. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's what was fascinating to me, and I did get an advanced copy, and I read it, and and I and I wrote about it because, I mean, I, I, so many of these, I think I know of or know personally every person in this book. I mean, Christine Benz, Carolyn McClanahan, Nina O'Neill, this guy named Joshua hey. Brown. I'm not sure who yeah. he is. Uh, <laughs> Cheryl Penny. There. I mean, it, it's it's fascinating. All a yeah. all a listers. It, it was fascinating to me because when I read the first couple, I'm thinking, "Oh, this is going to be cool. I'm going to see how everybody manages their own portfolios and stuff." But it got into this whole of like the concept of money and investing in a different way of investing in your life and using money to just accomplish those goals and how different people. I think in every single essay, there was one like faux pas of financial services, somebody kind of apologizing for, well, I know this isn't the best way to do it. Like in oh, yours, yeah. Josh, you talk about you, you, you invest in things that are kind of personal, like ventures of friends and stuff like that. And you just think, I'm not going to judge them too hard, but I believe that's a good use of some of my money. Yeah. You know, that is the most fascinating thing to me in, in the whole industry is like, where do people deviate from like what we know is logical, rational, orthodox? Where do people make a left turn? And what's the reason why they do it? And like the whole thing was set off for me by this quote from Jack Bogle. He's literally the high priest of low cost indexing, period. It's all you need. It's all you'll ever need. He spent 50 years telling people that. And then he explains that his son manages a small cap stock fund that's actively managed and high cost. And Jack invests in it. Yeah. And, and he said flat out, he's like, well, if that doesn't sound consistent to you, I'm sorry. I don't know what to tell you. Life isn't consistent. Some things we do for family reasons. That really resonated with me. It's okay to deviate from the path, from the orthodoxy, and do things because your heart tells you to do them. And that's a, a running motif through every chapter. You're right. Is people being like, look, I know this isn't what I'm supposed to do. Some of them, they're talking about, I have no bonds. Some of them are like, I'm holding a ton of cash. In my case, I'm investing in my friend's stuff. Like everyone has that thing. And they're just like, too bad. This is what I want to do. It's not maybe what I'm supposed to do, but I want to. And I love that. And I love that people were so honest about telling why those, is that, those well, stories. Why it's, it's interesting. So you're almost, you're humanizing people in a way. And saying that these people who are supposed to be disciplined, like Bogle, you're pointing to as the most disciplined guy ever in our field. What's the what's your take on why they do this or how do they rationalize it or or what's the psychological dynamic there for some of these people? And what did they wind up doing with their money? And an interest, you know, what was interesting to you? Well, one of the things that comes out in the book, and Brian Portnoy and I were very surprised when we started getting first drafts from people, how personal people were willing to get. And a lot of the stuff that people end up writing about is like from their childhood. So I was really interested. I was really amazed, I should say, that people were like willing to go there with us because it's not like we're shrinks and they're on our couch. And we really didn't ask them. We weren't like, tell us about your child. This was not Sigmund Freud stuff, right. like tapping a pipe. <laughs> so, but they, but they did. And, and they went there. And they weren't talking with each other. A lot of these people don't know each other. Or we didn't tell them who else was contributing in some cases. So this is just something that I thought was the biggest takeaway from the book is that your formative experiences as a, as a child, as a teen, as an, a, young, a young person, 
that stuff echoes throughout the rest of your life. I'll give you two quick examples. The first is the Sarte Yarnway's chapter is arresting. Like you just read it and you have to take a break. He's a first generation American. His parents fled a war torn country called Liberia, which like two decades of civil war. And literally they had nothing. And then he ended up having these experiences in school where he was around wealthy people, the children of wealthy people. And those experiences have formed the core of his entrepreneurial and advisory philosophy. Portnoy's chapter is about his parents' divorce and how he saw money being used as both a tool to control and as a weapon to inflict harm. So like these are things that happen in our childhood and then we grow up and they, they make an impression on the way we invest and save and spend. And I, That's I really a 19th century Russian novel. Josh. Yeah. No you doubt. You know what I mean? That's not a, you know, speech by a financial advisor at a conference. That's what you get in 19th and 20th century literature for crying out oh, loud. Oh, can I tell you one thing? That's so I'm so glad you said that. I was saying to somebody the other day, like on podcasts or at conferences, tell me about yourself, tell me about your background. Those interviews are great, but and I I have a podcast and you guys have a podcast and we've done conferences. But like you don't <laughs> get the same level of truth from people in that setting because they're self-conscious, right? They're talking to somebody. They know it's going to be recorded. Like look at Ken Fisher. Like people aren't confessional anymore. So, but, but with this, it's like, hey, sit in a dark, quiet room by yourself and just write your, about your relationship with your investments. And then that's where like the truth comes out. Maybe there's a lit candle. Maybe somebody's like, right? Maybe... <laughs> You have a different writing experience than I do, Josh. <laughs> I'm just saying, like, You're making that's it sound like Edgar Allan Poe, like, quote the Raven, you know, once well, upon a midnight like, theory or something. <laughs> it's like just just telling your telling your truth right. into a laptop without an audience. You get a different result than, hey, come on my TV show and tell me in front of a million people. You know what I'm saying? So but it's I, not I, journal I think that that writing. Was, it's not journal writing either. It's not. It's explanatory. It's not confessional, right? They're, these people are really explaining what they do, it sounds yes, like. Yes, that's exactly right. Good point. I talked to Brian about this when I was writing the, the piece I wrote about the book, and uh, he told me that the, you, you didn't give a lot of guidance to people intentionally. They, they gave him a copy of what you wrote originally, Josh, on your blog, and then they said, uh, just kind of tell us your own story. And, and he said roughly 1,500 words. Some are a little longer than that, some are a little shorter, but what was that like? I mean, what what kind of stuff were you seeing initially? Was there a lot of editing? Was I mean, tell us a little bit about that process. So we had some people who were just like straight up, look, I'm not a writer. I'm a great public speaker. So I'm just going to give you, I'm just going to put this down and then you got to help me make it a better written piece. And then we had other people who are really great writers, but their predilection is to do like 5,000 words. And that's just not you know, wouldn't fit with what we, not that every one of those words isn't important, but it just like wouldn't have worked. So that was really more of the type of editing we did. As far as like content, we didn't really have people say things that we were like, you can't say that. And we didn't have people say things that were like prompted by us. And we really didn't want to have a book where 25 people all sound the same. And thank God there's almost no uniformity. No. There from is one chapter not. to the next. I was expecting a lot of, well, there, I did see a little bit of uniformity in, in terms of 
if anybody talked real specifically about their their kind of large allocations, it was a lot of a lot of focus on low cost and a lot of focus on long term, which was really impressive. I mean, they were talking almost like foundation managers and stuff like that. They're like, yeah, I'm, you know, didn't matter how old they were, which is something I, I mentioned to you, I wish was included in the book was the age of each contributor because it kind of gives a little more perspective as to their investment. When I read your article, I said, I, when I read your article, I said, you know what? He's, he's exactly right. But then I thought about it some more and I said, how do you go about asking people to include their age? Like what if some, some people are like, I don't want to. Yeah. So, but it is, it is a good point. I figure, I figure you could like Google, Google people, maybe do an image search and then right. like try to guess. Well, yeah. And, and for me, because I, like I said, I either know or know of everyone in this book. I, I kind of know their age or roughly. So, you know, but it, it was just to me, I'm like, oh, this person has zero bonds, zero. They must be oh, that's 15 Linzen. years Linzen. old. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's Lindsay. Lindsay's like, Lindsay's like in his fifties, but yeah. he's a, he's a venture capital guy. You, you can't convince him to accept 1% returns. No chance. I'd like Wake to ask you, what did you learn about investing from the book? What I learned about investing was that a lot of the right, quote unquote, right answers in, in investing come from what makes you happy. And, you know, Brian Portnoy puts it in a way where he says, wealth, the definition of wealth is funded contentment. And I actually really like that phrase. It's like, are you happy? Yes. Then does it matter if you own the best performing emerging markets fund and you only own the eighth best? Not really, <laughs> right? Not in the grand scheme of things. So that's that's what I've that's what I learned, and I should say I relearned it. I already know that, but it was an affirmation. Yeah, great stuff. Uh, a lot of good uh, lines in that book that could be. I, I underlined a lot of things to hopefully uh, paraphrase, but not plagiarize. The last thing I want to ask you about this before we get to the, the next book topic is uh, what was the recruiting process? Like, did you have people kind of turn you down and, and how wide a search did you have to go to? Because because they're not all financial advisors. I think only about a third of these people are financial advisors. They're all financial experts. But what was that like, the recruiting part? Well, we wanted to make sure that everyone we were including in the book is employed in financial services. So there are a lot of people in our circle that are experts or can write a really great piece about how they invest. But if they're not professionally involved in investing, it's just that's a different book. So that was the first thing. We did have some people turn us down because for compliance reasons, they're just not allowed to do stuff like this, but not a lot. And we really didn't ask a, a why. This is not like we sent out a blast and asked 300 people, and these are the 30 that responded. I, I think we maybe got four or five people who said no, and all of it was because they just, they aren't allowed to. So I think people were eager, especially when we were like, look, 750 words, 1,000 words, don't, you know, don't, don't go crazy. That's not a huge ask. The, the part that makes it an ask is we were telling people like, this is about you. It's not your advice for strangers. It's like, this is about your life. But people were game, and I was really impressed with that. Christine is doing ticker symbols. Like <laughs> I know. She was like, I know. These are the funds I own. <laughs> yeah, that, that was funny. I, she, I think hers, Christine Benz of Morning Stars, that's the first one I read. I'm like, wow, these are all going to be like this. I'm going to build my own portfolio out of this thing. But uh, it didn't happen that way. But I learned a lot and I, I recommend it, how I invest my money. It's really a fun read and you can read them in any order and read them at your leisure. Get the book when it comes out. 
I think uh, Bruce wants to take us in on a time machine now to go back to your first book way back 10 years ago or something like that, Bruce. Yeah, definitely. Thanks, Jeff. Now, I got to know Josh initially. It must have been 10 or 12 years ago, Josh, because you were publishing the Reform Broker blog. That became the Reform Broker book. You knew our old colleague, Mark Bruno, I believe, in, yeah. in college or high school. He came up to me one day and said, hey, I know Josh Brown. <laughs> yeah. Back in the office in 2010 or 2009 when the financials, when the world yeah, yeah. was falling apart. I think, I think Investment News briefly published the blog. Yeah. But you came into our offices, talked to us about blogging, and then you know you either gave out the book or sent me a copy or something like that. And I thought your story was fascinating because it was, you're talking about asking these financial services and financial advisor people to write their stories about money. You wrote in the first book, The Reform Broker, you wrote your story about your evolution from a commission-based broker to a fee-based financial advisor and how much you were putting on the line at the time. I think back in, you were starting to make that change back in 2007, 2008, if I recall properly. So so I made it. So I, it actually, this summer was the 10th anniversary of leaving the brokerage business. That's amazing. I put a post up at the time. Yeah. So I, I knew I wanted to leave from 2008 but I had nowhere to go. Nobody wanted me. I was I was useless. To what the was world, the story about? This, was it the Jamba Juice pitch in your book? Oh yeah. So, <laughs> so get into that a little so, bit. We like what? Yeah. So the way we were as as a so this is just what I was taught. Talk I didn't about know. Being any, a broker, I didn't know any better. I guess. Yeah. So basically, what we were taught was you select stocks. You know, not not garbage like you would try to build portfolios for clients with stocks that you believe in and some of them would be like what you would say are blue chips stocks with which a story is laughable, but, right and then you would have story stocks and you would just you would do your best to make people money and and the clientele were it should be said these were not people that were like I want my money managed conservatively the clients were gamblers and stockbrokers were selling them trading ideas so this is just what the, the, the business was. And I had no idea there was this whole other side of the business that was advice. So, so the first chapter, in, there's a chapter in my first book where I tell the story about building a big position, big at the time, in a SPAC, believe it or not, that ends up becoming Jamba Juice. And the SPAC was led. You're going to laugh at this. This is it. even better. I love the, it. The SPAC was led by the guy whose claim to fame is that he was the, the former CEO of Blockbuster. I shit you not. This, I swear to God. So my, part, my, my partner and I bought like all this stock and we bought it personally. Like we were, oh, no. we drank the Kool-Aid and we bought it and it ran up to 17 and then it went to like a dollar. So, but that was, at the time it was really pain. It was really painful because I just had been, pounding the table on Jamba Juice to everyone. And when it was working out, I started to act like I was the man. And when that blew up, it's, it's really the moment that I said to myself, Josh, you really don't know what you're doing. You really are not helping anyone. You have good intentions, but you're an idiot. And you need to figure out what you want to do with your career. So that was a blessing in disguise, as most people will tell you, trading mistakes in their careers have been. And ever since then, I've been pursuing this kind of like 
self-help autodidactic journey where I'm just trying to become a better version of whatever I was at the time. But yeah, that was 13, 14 years ago, that stock blew up and I learned a lot as a result. But you also saw an opportunity in social media. I remember later, Mark later, Bruno yes, and I yes. talking about that, that and, and how you wanted to brand yourself. And this almost brings us to our next topic, Twitter, about how you saw an opportunity in the market to be the social media advisor. So I really, maybe this is revisionist history, but I really didn't start, start off that way saying this is an opportunity to be a social but media advisor. it came advisor. to you over time, I imagine, right? It happened. Right. Yeah, it, it did happen, but I don't feel like it was premeditated because when I started on Twitter, there was nobody there. Tw- 2009, it was tiny and there right. was no one there in the financial industry because you literally couldn't. Like there, there was no way that most firms, hedge funds, mutual funds, asset managers, wirehouse brokerages, nobody was letting their employees tweet. Well, as a broker, you can't. You can't tweet because you have to get everything cleared with FINRA. If you're a registered FINRA NASD guy, well, you have you, to get a, you have to have it compliance. Yeah, compliance and it takes approved. weeks and months. Yeah, no, it was it was it was pointless. So here here was who was on financial Twitter in the early days, basically, and I was just using it to share links to the blog because you couldn't really say a lot. But it was financial journalists were there early, independent traders like day traders, and a handful of like. I guess anchors like CNBC, Bloomberg, and then there were like one or two money manager, financial advisors. That's how tiny it was. I remember getting Ritholtz to start a Twitter account. You know what I mean? Like it was, <laughs> it was that small. And then right. like Warren Buffett showed up, and Carl Icahn, and Cliff Asnes, and like some of like the biggest, most celebrated. Oh, you know who was early? He just died. What's his name? The natural gas magnate. He was great. Oh, um, T-Bone Pickens. Team Boone Pickens, I think, was the first billionaire on Twitter. If you if if you want to know if you want to know something. So anyway, um, the idea was not I'm going to use this to find clients. And to this day, I don't really find clients from Twitter anyway. But it was a great place to share links and make friendships and meet other people who were knowledgeable about the financial markets. And it was it was amazing. And we had a great time. And we built big followings. And all my friends have gone on to success. And it was great. Well, that does bring us to our next topic. What a segue. Twitter, yeah. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Now, Josh, you had a million followers, though, or have a million followers on Twitter, right? You're a a force to be reckoned with on Twitter. And I don't think you've tweeted since, was it May or something like that? That you last tweeted, about, I did see you tweeted about, out your book. About ten minutes. About ten minutes ago. Well, all right, <laughs> you, you did tweet about your your book or something recently, or, or but uh, oh, so you're back. All right, so we're He's breaking back, news baby. here. No, I'm not back. I'm not back. I understand what you're so asking. So what happened? Me. I'm not back. Yeah, tell us the story. I just don't. I I don't like it anymore. I don't enjoy it. I miss a lot of the interactions that I I used to have with. You know, there are so many great people there. Like I could go on for hours. How many great people? But it's just a lot, there's a lot about the platform that no longer suits my needs or makes me happy. Like I would just open it and read the first 10 news items that everyone was talking about. And it's just so depressing and the election stuff. And then like all the, the wars over the pro, are they protests? Are they looters? And just watching people say horrible shit to each other. And I, 
you know, I said to myself, Memorial Day weekend, I'm, I'm, I'm going to take the summer off and I'll come back after Labor Day. I just want to take the app off my phone and live my real life and be with my kids and be outside. And I did it. And then Labor Day came and went and I didn't even notice. I didn't like go, oh, I'm supposed to come back. Like, honestly, it's now it's been five months and I honestly can't imagine ever being back. That being said, a lot of my coworkers are on Twitter. So if something's going on, like they'll put it on Slack. It's always like funny stuff, like from all the meme guys that I love. But like, <laughs> I don't really feel like I'm missing anything. I'm reading more books than ever. I'm reading a lot of news. And I really just, I don't watch TV, televised news. And I don't scour Twitter every five minutes. And my life has never been better. So it's not personal. I do miss people. And I, I do talk to all, all the people I know offline, on the phone, et cetera. So I'm not really missing anyone I'm friends with. And it, it is what it is. I don't, you know, I, there's not much more to it than that. You, you are on other platforms, though, right? I think you told me this once before. You're, you're, you're you should having... see what's going on on TikTok right now. <laughs> I'm getting lit the fuck up right now. I swear, I'm not even making a joke. My handle is at Downtown J Brown. All right. I will have to. On, uh, and I'm getting, I'm getting killed. I'm getting OK Boomered into the Stone Age right oh, now. Oh, man. So, but so that's a thing that's you're, going you're on. Also, you're, you're on Facebook, right? And obviously LinkedIn, right? The big thing I've been working on is YouTube. And actually, two days ago, we broke 50,000 subscribers, which there, I don't think there is a financial advisor who's anywhere even near that. The only one I could think of was Jeff Rose, but then he's like out of the business now, I think. I think he's like a motivational speaker now. I was looking like Merrill Lynch has like 5,000 subscribers. Like Fidelity has <laughs> like 7,000. Right. Wow. So we're in the process of building this thing out on YouTube and the clients, clients don't really, we write these like thousand word blog posts five days a week and the clients really don't want to sit and read all our shit every day, but they really do want to hear what the firm is thinking about every topic. So video has become a really great way that our advisors can just blast these YouTube clips to the clients. And then we're building a young audience. Like the average YouTube follower is half the age of the average person that's following us on Facebook. So 50,000 subs is amazing. Our typical video is like 15, 20,000 views. We've done a few that have gone stratospheric and we're having a lot of fun Like because nobody gets to tell us how long or how short. Nobody tells us what we can't say. So we're having a lot of fun building that out and we're working hard on it and it's paying off. How much work is that? I mean, it takes, all these things take time and resources, whether you're writing a blog or, well, tweeting doesn't take a lot of time, sometimes not even a lot of thought. Not anymore, it doesn't, Jeff. Right, but how much, I mean, there, there must be some, some editing involved and production involved in YouTube videos. Is that? Yeah, I'm not doing any of the hard stuff. The hard stuff, we have employees who work literally at the RIA. Right. I wasn't, I wasn't suggesting that you doing were doing all that video editing, editing but you're, you have to produce the content and that's not always, you know, so, so is that taking, no, that ain't I mean, easy. That is ain't that easy. something that other advisors who would be listening to this could, could undertake without having the resources of Ritholtz? Could a, could a smaller firm do something like that? Have a footprint on, on YouTube, you think? Yeah. And I'm sure, I'm sure there are other advisors who are who are doing video well. I just haven't heard of them, but that doesn't, for a while, nobody would have heard of me because we were, we were tiny for a long time. And then it just really started blowing up in the last six months. So there are probably other people doing this successfully. I don't think 
you have to like stop everything and focus solely on YouTube. I think we try to stay within our core competence and talk about things we know about. We're doing videos that like if you actually pay attention, it's like Batnick, me, Ben Carlson, Barry jumps on, Blair jumps on. A lot of what we're talking about is what we just wrote about. Like, hey, Ben, tell us about the blog post that you did or whatever. So it's not like we have to sit and do all this research. We've already done that work. And then where did the blog post idea come from? Well, if you read our stuff, a lot of it comes from client questions. Read Ben Carlson, like look at the last 20 posts he's done. And you can, the fingerprints on those post titles are like, these are all questions that our advisors are getting from clients. What happens going into an election? What happens after an election? What about if interest rates start to rise again after they've been depressed for so long? When will inflation come back? We do these very in-depth, heavily researched blog posts as a function of what people are actually asking us. And then the videos become just another way to deliver that same content, maybe to a more casual audience. Because let's be honest, most American adults are not sitting around reading financial blog posts. And that's essentially what Bruce and I are doing with this podcast. We, we're basically talking about the stuff that we've already been working on and have written about. We don't really want our bosses to know that because we want them to think we've got, we're doing two different, two completely separate jobs. But, uh, <laughs> You're getting two bites of the same apple. Yeah, well, really, we're just, we're just telling people what they didn't read yet. Bruce, you want to you wanna roll us home, brother? Yeah, sure. First of all, just to comment on Twitter and and saying, you know, on what Josh is saying about Twitter and how dark it got. Maybe if there's a change in after the election and Joe Biden wins, you know, will Twitter change? What Josh is describing makes me think, you know, we have a, a president, right, who uses Twitter and attacks his enemies on Twitter or perceived enemies. And has what's been his impact on Twitter in general? I think it's deeper than that. And I'm not going to pretend that I didn't benefit from this in some way. But the way Twitter literally is structured, and that's why it's so laughable when you see what they're doing for this election. But I'll get to that in a second. The way Twitter is structured is the more provocative and outrageous you are, the better your posts will do. And the more likely it is that you'll build a following. Right. Absolutely. So the more you poke people in the eye. So that is that is actually the structure of the site itself. It I don't I'm not saying that Ev and Jack wanted it to be that way, but they haven't exactly changed it in the last 15 years. So the type of people, and I used to be one of them, who thrive on Twitter are people who pull the pin out of a grenade. And then stand in the fucking room as it detonates <laughs> because they don't want to miss an instant of the resulting carnage. So it's very, it's very fair to say, Josh Brown, that was you circa 2010, 11, 12, throwing grenades at the, all right, so now I'm older and wiser and maybe more emotionally mature. I've actually met some of the people that I've said mean things to in person, and I've wanted to crawl up in, inside myself and die. So <laughs> I'm not, I don't, I don't want to be that person right. anymore that hurts people's feelings. And then here's, let me, let me just, let me button it up this way. There are two types of people who should be on Twitter. People with nothing to lose and people with so much that nothing can actually hurt them. So 
if you have if you don't have a a pot to piss in and you're like either very young or in the early stages of your career you have no reputation you have no connections you have no social graph and you have nothing to lose twitter is great for you and trust me because i was that person then there's billionaires who basically can go on twitter naked and there might be a, a an industry firestorm or whatever but they'll probably be fine what are you going to do what are you going to do to them? They have billions of dollars. Right. So then you have this middle group in between. Let's just call them normal people. Normal people shouldn't be there because it's – right? So, so those are the two groups that I think should, should be on Twitter, billionaires and liter- literally people with nothing to lose. Right. And everyone else who has a wife, kids, a career, every time you send a tweet, you're risking somebody becoming incensed by your opinion right. and like – literally calling for your job. That is not a fun place to spend time. So I don't. I love it. Josh, always thought provoking, engaging. I miss you guys. We'll we'll be in the city this time next year. Okay. Definitely. So that was the latest edition of the investment news podcast. Again, we want to thank our special guest, Josh Brown, Really, the guy I credit as being the first or the most prominent or one of the most prominent social media advisors out there, as you can tell, you know, we devoted a lot of this conversation to social media. Josh is hanging out on TikTok these days. What's the handle of TikTok again, Josh? <laughs> Not really hanging out there. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's dipping in and out. He's going in and out of TikTok. So you can find him. There, uh, we also want to thank Stephen Lamb, our very own tech guy. And uh, if it's Monday, Jeff Benjamin, you can find the Investment News podcast at investmentnews.com, Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and Stitcher. And I want to say this to everyone with an iPhone out there, okay? There's an app on the iPhone for podcasts. Open it up, hit the app, go into the app, give us five stars. What are you waiting for? Come on, we need more reviews on Apple. And please, if you're listening to us on Spotify, follow us on Spotify. Jeff Benjamin uh, on Twitter, the aforementioned Twitter, is at Benji Ryder. And me, Bruce Kelly, I'm at BD News Guy. So thanks a lot for listening, and we'll be talking to you next week.